electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Morgan, thank you very much. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, getting ready for New Year's. This is Fast Money, and here's what's on tap. Stocks on the doorstep of new highs. The S&P now less than half a percent from record levels and up more than 11 percent since just November. Is this fourth quarter rally stealing potential gains from the new year? We will debate that one. Plus, the Bitcoin boom. Yeah, you heard me right. Booming again, surging more than 160% this year and lifting the fortunes of the whole crypto universe. Looking into 2024, would you rather Bitcoin or the crypto stock? Steve Grasso will opine on that, among other things. And later, the obesity bulge. Are the supersized returns this year going to get slimmed down in 2024, no matter how massive the GLP-1 market gets? We will go inside the numbers. I'm Tyler Matheson, everyone, in for Melissa Lee tonight. So glad you could join us coming to you live from Studio B upstairs at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Steve Grasso, Courtney Garcia, Mike Coe is remote, and guest trader Stuart Kaiser, City's head of equity trading strategy. Welcome, one and all. Glad to have you with us. But we start with a major legal fight over the explosion of AI and just how all that data being collected by engines like ChatGBT and BARD are being scrapped, uh, or rather I should say scraped from the web. One major news organization is crying foul, and it could have major implications for AI as we head into the new year. CNBC's Steve Kobach reports. Hey there, Tyler. Yeah, the New York Times sued OpenAI and Microsoft today, alleging the pair used the Times copyrighted material to train their AI models. And the examples the Times shows in its suit are quite egregious, and it's evidence the chatbot basically plagiarizes articles from the news outlet. It's also a sign it's using the articles nearly verbatim without permission or compensation. The Times says in the lawsuit seeking damages worth billions, but not specific on the exact amount they're seeking. New York Times also reported today the outlet approached OpenAI and Microsoft in April to work on an agreement for the tech companies to train AI on the Times material. But nothing came of the talks. This is also the first major media organization to sue OpenAI over how it trains its chat GPT bot. Microsoft is a major investor in OpenAI with an investment reportedly valued at $13 billion. Now, that investment gives it early access to some OpenAI technology, which has been put into products like Bing Search and Office apps. Now, this likely won't be the last lawsuit either. A group of authors have already sued OpenAI and Microsoft based on similar allegations. Tyler? All right, Steve Kovac, thank you. Uh, For more on this, let's turn to Deepwater Asset Management's Gene Munster. Gene, I I guess one question that comes to my mind is, What took them so long? I mean, AI uh, engines like ChatGPT or BARD have been aggregating content from all kinds of sources, the New York Times, Time Magazine, National Geographic, wherever, for as long as there's been AI. Why does it take them so long? 
Well, maybe there was a little push from Elon Musk on November 29th at the DealBook Summit. Uh, this is his famous interview where he uh, really took a lot aims at a lot of people, and he also took aim at these foundation models that were training on copyrighted data. When the question, the topic came up, uh, he said that it's a lie that the foundation models are not training on copyright data. So he's saying that they are. And then uh, he later, I think, reiterated three times, it's a lie, it's a big fat lie, it's a straight lie, and classic Elon Musk. So maybe they were emboldened by those comments from Musk, but it, this is uh, long overdue. And Tyler, just to set up what's really at stake here is this dynamic around fair use. And so that's what uh, I was going to ask you. When does when does copyright material that has been in the quote public domain or been out there for a while fall under the fair use doctrine, which enables uh, republishers to republish? So this is a topic that I suspect will find its way to the Supreme Court because it's a big deal. AI is a big deal. And how they train on that is important. And so right now, uh, fair use is something that is uh, by uh, a reasonable person's standard, something that is out and uh, readily available. And the way I think about it is the article is written in the New York Times. That article is circulated around different professional and user generated people, whether that's through Twitter and X or other news outlets, uh, uh, content on YouTube, um, uh, give their own spin on it. And that becomes part of fair use. And so that's this uh, this dynamic that it's it's just really hard. It's like uh, kind of trying to. Um, Mm -hmm. adjudicate what is truth. I mean, there's these, these, all these gray areas. And so unfortunately, this fair use topic is at the center. And uh, it's fun to look at. I would recommend anybody go and use uh, ChatGPT today, ask it questions about uh, New York Times and the content. And it's <laughs> been quick to hold its tongue and, and say, you have to revisit the New York Times. So they made a, a quick correction there. But uh, that is exactly it. And that's why this isn't right. going to get resolved anytime soon. We're going to spend most of the next hour discussing what is truth, basically, right? I yeah. mean, just do that philosophically. But I know Steve has a question for you. My, my wife always asked me that. Yeah, too. What it's a big truth? topic in my house. So, Gene, when you look at this, what we We've done a great deal of this year is trying to figure out what the worth is for some of these companies in the in the AI department. So now we have Microsoft where you could see some licensing fees. The fees will go up. So the AI might go. The value of that might go down. When I look at a company like right. NVIDIA, how far downstream do we get now when we talk about the chips and how they, the AI is actually programmed? But when I switch gears, a company that you know very well Tesla's AI might be more valuable than Microsoft's AI because there's not a lot of copyright that would go to it. Indeed, I think that is probably the biggest takeaway here is, uh, you know, which companies are going to be best positioned from this. It's probably companies like Tesla, like you said, it's X from uh, X.AI and all that Twitter X data that they have. That's 500 million daily tweets that, that is proprietary to X. You have Google and all that content on YouTube and the search content that can be that can use to train Gemini. I think that's uh, where they uh, all those end up stronger. And to answer your question, just you know, how does this play out in terms of creation of value? There's these these uh, little levers that we're talking about. Where does licensing go, and how does that impact kind of down the 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 the, the 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 downstream effects of that? But ultimately, I think that you know the biggest uh, picture here is that. This isn't going to change how fast AI is going to be developed. It may slow it by months, but not years. And effectively, I think we still are 
uh, well positioned for what's going to be a massive bull market that's going to be driven by AI across tech in the next three to five years. And so this is a headline. This is worth talking about. This is important about fair use. Right. But it doesn't change what that end trajectory is, which that AI is going to live up and exceed Here all the expectations. Yeah, this is a bump in the road. I, I, before we go, we trade it, uh, Gene, I want to turn to Courtney for a quick thought or question. Yeah, I think the question that investors are really looking at right now is how is this going to affect them in the long run, right? I mean, if you look at some of those things that Steve was reporting on, it looks pretty damning. I mean, the plagiarism is like highlighted completely in red there of what they're doing. So how realistic is it that, um, you know, these media companies are going to get some sort of compensation from them? And what does that take away from the bottom line of Microsoft? Is this going to be short term until it becomes public use? Or is this something that actually is going to be affecting their earnings going forward that we need to be more worried about from an AI standpoint? It's going to be fractional. They, I think there will be many of these payouts. I think there are going to be a lot of these relationships, just like what happens with music and how music is distributed throughout a lot of different. There was the Peloton and what happened with music, and then they licensed it. And uh, I think that ultimately is that there's going to be a lot of these relationships between publishers and the companies that train on it. But even tens, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of annual licensing fees, is which I would expect it to be, isn't going to matter in the long term when you look at what the type of value that these companies are, are trying to generate. And so it's going to be um, mm. probably it probably won't even be measurable, even at the hundreds of millions of dollars a level. And I suspect those will be the, 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 the types of uh, relationships that are going to form in the years to come. All right, Gene Munster, thanks very much for uh, giving us the context here. We appreciate it. Thank you. Gene Munster. All right, let's trade this. Mike Coe, uh, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, you know, first of all, we could take a look at the $13 billion that Microsoft invested. That's really not material in the grand scheme of Microsoft $2.8 trillion company. Uh, and, of course, it's still going to be growing EPS at about 15% uh, year on year. I wonder whether some of this, uh, shall we call it, duplicative language issue that we're, we're seeing here with uh, ChatGPT and others might be solved in part by attribution. And I would say that I think that this is a material benefit for those that are actually generating this content initially, because we don't want to disincentivize that. I mean, that whatever that source is, we want to make sure it's properly identified. And I, I wonder whether some of this solution might be uh, found in that way. I guess you know, what you're saying there is if, if the copy that shows up in your feed on Bard or ChatGPT attributes the content to the to the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or whatever you could you could blunt the impact of this. Stu, do you have a thought here uh, on on how this lawsuit and this sort of theory of appropriation by these might affect the equities? Look, I, you know, I think it highlights really the, the challenge and the opportunity of investing in AI for the last 12 to 24 months, which is picking winners and losers has become extremely complicated. So people have focused on owning the pipes and effectively that's meant owning the chip, the chip designers, because if AI is growing, those pipes are going to get bought and used, and it takes away the challenge of kind of picking winners and losers. And you could actually go back to crypto. It was, it was the same issue. You don't necessarily know which coin is going to win, but you know they need processing power to produce them. So I think AI is kind of following that same approach. And for now, I think it keeps people investing in the pipes and the infrastructure. So the way to go, if you're going to play this space in a safe way where you don't have to choose uh, one winner is to go with the with the sure winners, the ones who are going to be in part of the distribution. Yeah, I think that's how people have been doing it. And I think something like this makes people continue to do that same thing. Court, quick thought before we move on. Yeah, and I think also bigger picture, what's kind of interesting to think about here is 
Um, AI, whether, you know, we might not know who the winners or losers are. Microsoft arguably is probably going to be one of the bigger winners of it, of the uh, mega cap seven. Seems that way now. Um, But it's going to help productivity in the general economy. And we have this shortage in the labor market. And this is going to make companies more productive over the long run. So whether there's winners or losers, it's going to help that tight labor market, which is ultimately going to be a good thing for the economy. All righty. Let's move on and turn to the markets. The Dow closing at a fresh all-time high. The S&P now just points away uh, from a record level. Uh, And while the Nasdaq still has a bit of work to do to get back to new highs, it is on track to have its best yearly performance in 20 years. One of the major factors boosting the appetite for stocks has been the move in the 10-year note. It is downward in yield. The yield keeps dropping. Now under 3.8%, lowest level since July. So, Stu, should investors be cheering all these December games or worried that we're front-running some of the returns that might otherwise be delivered in January, February? Are we tapping our dessert too early? Well, I think we should always cheer gains, (laughs) regardless of when we get them. But, look, I think we were pretty bullish going into year-end. I think that December FOMC kind of extended the window for that bullishness. So, yeah, you could argue there's maybe been a little bit of pull forward from 24 into late 2023, particularly in the lower end of the market cap spectrum. Uh, but, look, we think that's a net positive, and we, we remain pretty constructive in equity markets. You know, whether you're getting the returns now or in a month, I think you should just want, you want to be long equities, you want to participate. It would be a bold soul who would say that 2024 could measure up to 2023, right? No. It, it, you, you, you think that? You think it 2024 well, we'll could be down. as good? Stewart's as probably the best person to have on the desk to, to do this. I don't, want, I don't want to throw him a That's why I'm looking at No, no, no. I'm going to get deeper yeah. into, the, into the analytics because we've talked about the MAG-7. But if you pull out the MAG-7, we're only up 10% for the and year. And so you've got you the, think the, that's the an unweighted index, the, uh, basically the unweighted. Equal weighted. Equal right? so weighted. So you have the equal weighted in index. And, it, and everyone's looking at these in the mid-20s on performance. And we think, oh, my gosh, we hit a dozen grand slams here how could we possibly ever do this again but if i would that have told, might be the way if i tell you that that we were up 10 percent, you would say all right that's a, that's a good year because yeah. historically markets are up 10 percent on average from the start they were trading underneath that buttonwood tree downtown Look, I, you know, I think that's right. There's a lot of space to catch up in, in kind of the broader market cap space. If I was going to give you like degrees of bullishness, you know, the first degree would be, hey, we don't go into recession next year. The uber bullish okay. outcome would be what the Fed hinted at in December, which is not only we're we not going into recession, but we're doing insurance cuts on top of that. So, look, you're, you do have to thread a bit of a needle to be as bullish about 24 as you have been about 23. But but there is a playbook there that people are looking at. So is the place to look sort of the point Steve just made is the place to look at those. Uh, equal weighted kinds of stocks. If you're if you're if you're an index player, play the equal weight SPX SP. Yeah, Whatever, SPW. Right? Exactly. SPW. And, right? and that, that's very much our view because we think the reason you had narrow leadership in 2023 is because earnings growth was very narrow and concentrated in a small number of stocks. You get into next year, we think that earnings growth broadens out, which means equity participation broadens out, which means something like S&P equal weight is really where you want to have your exposure on. Courtney, jump in here. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think things have really turned a corner end of October, and I think that trend is going to continue. Things like your small caps, things like your energies, things like your real estate, anything that's really interest rate sensitive has taken off. And I think, to Steve's point, those things were really underperforming earlier this year. A lot of those are actually down up until October. Um, now we're starting to see them come back on. They still have a lot of room to grow. Um, there could be some sort of pullback. I think the only hesitation is um, like uh, investor optimism is overly optimistic right now. And they're overly mm. hoping there's going to be six cuts next year, which probably isn't going to happen. So bringing back some of the excitement might happen, but I think that'll only be minor. And I think markets will go higher. Mike Coe, any, any uh, pr- perspectives here? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, if, if you think that uh, the S&P has outdone itself and you're concerned about the fact that you've seen some multiple expansion, there hasn't been any actually in the equal weight. Equal weight's trading about 17 and a half times, and that's approximately where it was 10 years ago. It, I mean, if you take a look at uh, price earnings on the equal weight index, it essentially is unchanged for a decade. So I, I think what everybody on the desk has said so far is right. I mean, if you're trying to chase the best performing stocks this year and expecting them to do the same thing in 2024 that they did in 2023, I think that's probably pretty ambitious. I think there's already been a lot baked into the cake there, but there's a lot of other names in the index that haven't performed anywhere near as well. So let me let me put out a, sort of a jump ball for the table here. If, if there is an unloved sector from 2023 that you think is going to get some love in 2024, what might it be? Would it be energy? Would it be finances? Would it be healthcare? What could healthcare, it be? Healthcare, biotech. I think, healthcare, I think biotech. We've, we've traded pretty much on healthcare and biotech, just in M&A stocks, and then the, which we'll talk about it tonight as yes. well. We talk about those marquee names and the marquee things that they are used to treat, but there's been a host of names. There should be a MAG 7 or a MAG 4 with those names because we've forgotten about all small, small cap biotech. They trade they don't trade until there's a reason to trade. So you have to buy an index versus buying, picking the winner that's going to be taken. So here's one cheer for healthcare. You got one that, that I, is I, unloved I, that you I, like? I agree on healthcare, but I'd probably pick up on the bank's theme. I mean, if you avoid a recession, you get rates a little bit lower. That takes some of those mark-to-market losses out. You get the term, term structure, twos, tens, back positively sloping. I think there is room there, you know, for the bank sector. Look at healthcare, look at banks. What do you say, Court? Yeah, actually, we're looking at small caps. I actually have both of these things embedded in them. So I'm going to agree with both of you, but I'm going to go the small cap. You go with small caps. How about you, Mike? Is there an unloved sector from 23 that you think is going to get some shade or maybe some sunshine in 24? Yeah, I'm, I'm alongside the uh, the bank uh, call that we just heard. I mean, first of all, they're trading at a relatively low multiple. We've seen pretty abysmal numbers out of CNI uh, loan demand. And I think that obviously if we're seeing lower rates, then that demand should pick up quite materially. And so I think that's a positive. And, you know, obviously the multiple is a positive as well. And, and also in the healthcare space, I think that's uh, definitely outside of a couple of the names that have really have been bumped up by some of the things we're going to be talking about with respect to obesity drugs. Yeah. But uh, as, a, as a general case, I think that that is also an area that people should be taking a look at. Yeah, we're going to talk a little more about healthcare more broadly, but specifically those particular stocks in pharma in just a little while. OK, let's take a quick break, shall we? Uh, coming up, it has been a heck of a year for Tesla, up more than 100 percent. Will record deliveries help fuel more gains or will China's EV boom dent Tesla's growth? We will debate that one next. You can never get too much Tesla. And speaking of big years, crypto winter thawing out in a major way with Bitcoin jumping more than 150 percent. And a few stocks tied to the space have done even better. The names to watch when Fast Money returns. You're watching Fast Money here on CNBC. We'll be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. 
with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert now on the Apple Watch sales ban, and Pippa Stevens has the latest. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Tyler. Apple announcing just now that it is going to restart sales of the Watch Series 9 and the Ultra 2. They will be available in Apple retail stores today and back on online stores tomorrow. This, of course, comes after Apple said earlier that, it, that they had uh, that they were able to start reselling the Apple Watches after an import ban was temporarily paused by an appeals court. That was earlier today. Once again, Apple is going to restart selling the Watch Series 9 and Ultra 2. Tyler? Steve, thought? Yes, there's been probably a dozen reasons why you should get out of Apple. And it keeps defying all laws of probability. With with the watch, you know they're going to get over that. And then it was the uh, China... You couldn't have a cell phone that was an Apple. And in the meantime, two of the top selling five phones are, are Apple phones. There's always a wall of worry specifically to Apple. Yeah. And you're still going to be able to buy that watch somewhere else. And what do people do? Well, as soon as they heard they were, they were going to stop selling it, they ran out and they bought more watches. So there's going to be, you talk about pull forward your, your, uh, your dessert in the market. People pull forward their, their watches. Now the people that sat on the sidelines and said, let me wait until this works it out, they're actually able to buy it too. So I think if you're waiting on buying Apple, you should hold your nose. Don't look at the price. Buy it, save it, put it away. Put it away. All right, let's switch gears now and go to Tesla, another one that uh, seems to move forward. Charging higher on news that 2023 looks like it's going to be a record-breaking year for sales of their EVs. The stock almost higher by 2% today. The company now projected to deliver over 1.8 million vehicles this year. That's a bit below Musk's projection of 2 million at the beginning of the year, but up 37% nonetheless from 2022. And while Tesla is dominating here in the U.S., Bloomberg reports that Chinese EV maker BYD will overtake Tesla worldwide this year. So is this as good as it gets for Tesla? Mike, let's start with you. What do you think on this? Uh, I I don't think so. Uh, You know, Tesla really, I I think, is the leader in EVs. Uh, I I mean, I speak a little bit uh, with bias on this. We have a couple of them. I I think they're phenomenal cars and, and arguably the most efficiently priced cars that you could buy right now. There's a reason the Model Y is the best selling car. Uh, in the U.S. right now. And, you know, frankly, they just have levers that they can pull on that, you know, other automakers do not. Now, obviously, BYD has some advantages in terms of manufacturing. I think actually Tesla's going to end up benefiting from improved operating efficiency. And we talked about this earlier. Uh, you know, they have a lot of data that they've been collecting. They're, I think, almost certainly the leader in self-driving. Uh, you know, you put these things together. They're also building all of the infrastructure here. We've got Ford. They're going to be piling on for uh, their supercharging network. Uh, you know, in the U.S. at least, they definitely have a lead, and it's hard for me to imagine, even if BYD is making good progress in China, that they're going to overtake here and in Europe. Yeah, the Model Y, you see them everywhere. I was in Europe over the summer, and, and it, was, it was amazing to me how dominant Tesla was among EVs in a land, Norway, where I was, which has the highest penetration per capita of electric vehicles in the world. Courtney, thought on Tesla. 
Um, and actually, something Mike brought up, which I think is interesting, is the cost of a Tesla is a lot more than like a BYD, for example. They make them significantly cheaper, and that has been one of Elon Musk's problems. Is he's saying, well, interest rates being so high, it's pricing a lot of people out of Teslas right now. And especially, the U.S. hasn't quite adopted them as much as other countries. It's almost a third of all um, cars sold in China are EVs, which is about 8% here in the U.S. So there's definitely still a lot of room to run, but they are definitely getting some significant competition from China. So... I, you know, I think Tesla cars are fantastic, but as a stock, it's definitely more expensive. It could be worth looking at something like that as an alternative. That actually is one that um, Berkshire Hathaway had invested quite a bit in as well. Steve? So Tesla is, is, Mike had said this, Tesla is by far and away the name, the premium brand in the space. If we're worried about BYD taking a chunk out of Tesla, we should worry about Ford and GM a lot more than, than the, uh, the uh, dramatic effects that it's going to have on Tesla. Tesla has outperformed the entire space. It's broken on a technical basis. It's broken a, broken a declining trend line. I actually think this, the stock can go higher because people aren't factoring in how much money and how much monetization is going to happen with that charging network that Mike referred to. Yeah, the charging network keeps growing and growing and growing. It's convenient. Now it's going to open up to all different kinds of things. I hear as well that Tesla has a uh, refresh of the Model Y mm -hmm. in the pipeline, which is probably needed. It's been the sort of the same car for several years, uh, and that is going to give them uh, probably a boost when and if it comes forward. All right, a lot more fast to come. Here's what's coming up next. Constructive trading. Home builders putting hammer to nail over the last few months as home prices keep climbing. So will the gains keep coming or should you close the door on this trade? We'll debate next. Plus, weight loss drugs taking the market by storm this year. But can the hype continue into 2024? Why our next guest sees no signs of this trade slimming down. You're watching Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Home builders laying some strong foundation for the new year. The group rallying over the past few months, the ITB and the XLB ETFs. That's a whole alphabet right there. <laughs> Both up around 40% since October. Stu, where do you see the housing uh, gains next year if you see them? Look, I think it falls in a similar category to banks, right? It's a rate-sensitive uh, part of the equity market that's also highly growth-sensitive. So if you're in a year next year where you avoid a recession and you get yields a little bit lower, I think there's a lot of room for those parts of the market to, to rally. Uh, we have a recession in 2Q from our U.S. economists. In that case, you probably want to be a little more cautious. So I really think this boils down to what do you think about recession risk next year, and that will inform how you want to invest in those spaces. You know, Court, you, you look at um, existing home sales, which are down, down, down. Existing, 
the owners of homes aren't putting their houses on the market. So yeah. that means that the demand has to be met by whom? It has to be met by the builders, right? Exactly right, because most people who have mortgages right now have mortgages 4% or under. And they don't want to get trade up to a 6% exactly. mortgage or an 8% mortgage. Even with mortgage. rates coming down next year, they're still going to have to come down quite a ways for those people to actually be saving money by getting new houses. To put it in perspective, over the last decade, there's been about 5 million more households created than homes that have been built. And what's happening is all of your millennials are coming out, starting families, want to buy homes. People who have them aren't wanting to sell them. So that's where your home builders are going to benefit, especially as interest rates come down. More people can afford those homes. Ones who have homes still aren't selling them. And so no. I think that's only going to continue. As there's there's a here. lot of, you know, rehabbing and, and staying in the house, feathering your nest and so forth. Steve. So the, the, when you talk about the entry-level home buyer, Pulte Homes, really satisfies that it's it's up around well it's up exactly 128 percent year to date but then if you look at the elite home builders the, the toll tolls. brothers that one's up 108 percent so those people have a lot more cash than the average person but to, to courtney's uh point there's a deficit of homes that need to be built in this country and there's a deficit for the next 10 years you're not going to go broke buying home builders. Mike, am I recalling that last year, 2022, was a nearly disastrous year for home builders as interest rates rose? Well, I mean, first of all, they performed pretty well in the latter half of this year, despite the fact that rates are obviously considerably higher. I mean, Stuart and Courtney uh, and Steve all basically hit on the key drivers here. Uh, obviously, we have had home, new home construction has severely lagged uh, home unit creation. That's obviously mm -hmm. a, a big problem. Mm -hmm. You, as you rightly point out, we've got people locked into their into their homes. But the 30-year mortgage rates have fallen quite significantly, right. and we also have seen input costs for the home builders dropping as well. And that's one of the reasons that, as a group, they're trading at such a cheap multiple. I mean, they're probably ranging, depending on which one you look at it, between seven and 13 times earnings. Uh, they've had an awfully big run. It's a tough one to chase right here, but I, I actually think as long as the economy hangs in there, the, that this group is probably actually poised to be higher by the end of next year. All right, Mike, thanks very much. Uh, let's take a quick break. Coming up, slimming down in 2024, not this trade. Uh, how the weight loss drug frenzy can keep packing on the gains in the new year and the stocks that can, we had to do this. <laughs> Tip the scales. That's next. <laughs> Plus, Bitcoin on an absolute tear lately. I almost said Botox. Bitcoin on an absolute tear lately. But these gains are nothing compared with some other names in the space. The stocks that are benefiting from the crypto craze ahead when Fast Money returns in two minutes. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Stocks managing to close in the green today once again. The Dow jumping more than 100, closing at a fresh all-time high. The Nasdaq and S&P notching a fourth straight day of gains. The S&P inching closer to a record high there. All three indexes on eight-week winning streaks. That is the longest since back in 2017. Some stocks hitting all-time highs today. You got Booking, Marriott, Caterpillar. General Dynamics and Martin Marietta, all trading near those levels. Now let's move to healthcare. Obesity drug heavyweights Eli Lilly and Norvo Nordisk each set to finish 2023 up more than 50%, while the broader XLV healthcare ETF is flat for the year, 
But with ongoing supply constraints, insurance coverage challenges, and an uncertain macro environment, should investors worry that the GLP drug euphoria is ready to plateau? Let's ask Jared Holes. He's a healthcare senior sector strategist at Mizuho. What do you say, Jared? Are these drugs anywhere near topping off in terms of demand? Or is the, is the problem more that, that the companies may not be able to meet the supply needed? Hey, Tyler, thanks a lot for having me first, first of all. Of um, it's, a, it's a tricky one. I mean, the stocks have performed so well throughout the year. Um, obesity has been the defining narrative across healthcare and arguably other industry groups. I think now we face a little bit of a challenge with respect to you know, how the drug launches go, or are we going to be seeing numbers um, exceeding street forecasts, which are obviously um, not conservative at this point? And then, yeah, I think later on, how does managed care, how does the healthcare system pay for the drugs? These are all question marks coming into the year. Um, still think the stocks will have pretty good years next year. I just, I don't see 50% returns getting, getting, you know, Eli Lilly close to 800 billion in cap within the next 12 months. Right. And right now, it's really the two big, uh, the big beasts in this space are Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk. Do they have, can they meet the demand? I think they'll probably be able to. Within the past couple of months, both of those companies have announced major um, infrastructure moves. Novo Nordisk spending $6 billion on new factories, basically just to supply this one drug and maybe a couple others, and Eli Lilly between two and three billion. So if they can't meet the demand, you know, tomorrow, certainly over the next few quarters into next year, I don't think it'll be a big problem. But that's one of the the main challenges. You could also argue that demand is so high. If that if that's the real sticking point, not a great bear thesis for the stocks if the issue yeah. is real is the supply chain. Is is the supply chain and maybe some scarcity there, Stu? Yeah, just one supply and one demand question. I guess on the demand side, a lot of discussion about government health plans and, and what their appetite to kind of fund these are. And then the second would be, you know, how we, what's the bar for, you know, other companies to kind of enter this space? You know, I know Pfizer has been rumored as, as an entrant as well. So kind of supply demand wise, how would you handicap those two things? Yeah, well, on, on the government side, I think most of this is probably going to be uh, commercial insurance to start. Not sure it's going to be a huge Medicare drug, but it's obviously something we're watching pretty closely. Sounds like most of the plans have priced for it. I mean, next year is going to be a big test, right? Because you're going to see the ascent of both the Novo Nordisk drug and the Eli Lilly drug through the course of the year. Depending on how that ramp goes, um, you know, the insurance companies can reprice the business again for 2025. So next year will be a little bit of a test. And then on the on the competitive question, Pfizer is still looking at that area. It, it doesn't seem like they're going to you know, have anything major to speak about. But that's an ongoing debate. Amgen is another one with an injectable. The early data looked pretty good. And then you've got a lot of other companies in the fray, too. AstraZeneca just did a deal um, in Asia to get their hands on an asset. You've still got Altimmune and Viking Therapeutics and small cap biotech. And even though the data hasn't looked um, you know, perfectly clean, structure, GPCR is another one we're looking at. So it does seem like this is going to yeah. be an area with more competition. It just might be that Lily and Novo are the two that kind of lead the pack for a while. Yeah. So, so Jared, when, when you were talking about Lily and Novo up over 50% year to date, you mentioned Amgen. And when you were in studio last time, we, we discussed this. 
How early is too early to be looking at Amgen, who hasn't had, had the run that those other two players have had? Obviously, it's a much better delivery system. You said that the early trials look good. Is it too early to start buying that stock now? Not at all. I, I don't think so. I think a lot of investors have been um, adding to positions or putting new long positions on an Amgen for the past couple of months because they kind of want to get ahead of the curve on this one. They're looking at Novo and Lilly in the years that they've had. And if Amgen can give you anything and what's going to be um, a less frequent injection, if the efficacy data, if the weight loss data look very good, probably in the second half of next year, it's obviously going to be a stock that's going to have a big move. So I think it's started to happen, obviously not as pronounced as the others, but um, I, I don't think it's a stock where people, you know, kind of don't realize what the future holds. As I think, I'm not a portfolio manager, obviously, but as I think about how portfolios are constructed, I often think about core holdings. And I think about a core holding in, in almost any portfolio would be an Apple or a Berkshire Hathaway might be a core holding. Are Novo and, and Eli Lilly similarly the kinds of core holdings that you probably should have in your portfolio if you're assembling? Well, or, or Tesla could be a core holding for that matter. Totally. I mean, I get the concept uh, for sure. And I feel like based on the complexity and the other challenges that so many single companies in healthcare face, Lilly and Novo are still core holdings until there's a time in which it seems like estimates have either, mm -hmm. you know, gone way too high based on what the current, um, what the numbers are, are showing or there's a, a big pushback on the managed care side. But until then, and that might be a couple of years from now, until then, I still think these are going to be core holdings, even if you run a broader portfolio. All right, Jared, thank you so much. We appreciate your insight tonight. Really thank you for that. Thank you. Have a good new year. All right, let's trade it, guys. Mike, uh, what do you think? Well, he just mentioned managed care. You know, it's interesting. Obesity-related illness is about 10% of healthcare spend. I mean, it's a little bit lower probably on the government side and a little bit higher on the private side. Uh, they want to see this happen, right? So we've got about $4.5 trillion in U.S. healthcare spending overall. So, I mean, the cost of obesity is tremendous. And so that means that the financial opportunity for something that helps solve that problem is similarly tremendous. And I think that actually is a benefit for both the health plan providers, the ones that bear these costs along with consumers. And I think it's obviously going to be a benefit here. Novo isn't hugely expensive either at this current valuation, mm -hmm. although Lilly might be. Lily, we just showed their forward PEs, and I believe Novo is way below Lily's. Courtney, let me let me just throw the throw the ball over to you, but ask you this question: As Mike points out, obesity-related healthcare is is a high percentage of all healthcare. Mm -hmm. If these drugs arrest obesity or 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 pull it back, mm -hmm. are there sectors of the healthcare universe that are going to be negatively? impacted because there is less obesity. Obviously, if I own Weight Watchers, maybe I, maybe I want to own less Weight Watchers if these drugs became that popular. If I sell uh, equipment that is used in bariatric surgery, maybe my business isn't as good as it was because of these drugs. When you say Weight Watch, actually, they're, they're trying to get into this, actually. They, they realize that that's uh, going to take away from their business, which is kind of fascinating. But yeah. um, we talk a lot about obesity, but I think what's also interesting here is they're trying to expand the uses here. So it's more than just obesity. They're looking at things like diabetes and Heart disease, yeah, inflammation. Exactly. So I think the upside to what these drugs can potentially do is probably more than the downside that you're looking at of other areas <clears> and <throat> losing out on some of their profits. Um, so I think that's it's definitely going to be something that continues. 
But also keep in mind, when you take away Lilia Novo, the rest of the pharmaceutical industry hasn't done a whole lot of anything this year. I think when you look forward to next year, especially as rates come down, it could very well continue to take off. So, yes, you want to own those names, but I would look at the whole index here. A lot of these other ones, I think, still have some room to run. Uh, uh, Some of the other names. Correct. We we were like. Like, for example, like a Merck hasn't done a A lot of anything. But um, I would look at the index. They've got Keytruda, right? That's their big growth. Thoughts, too, quickly. Uh, I agree with that. Healthcare has been, I think, one of the more disappointing sectors year to date. A year when growth has done so well and large cap has done so well, healthcare has been, you know, tremendously left behind. So I think next year, if you get yields lower, I think these drugs can kind of just shine a spotlight on the whole space and and hopefully kind of rising tide lifts all boats. Steve mentioned it earlier as well. Take a quick break here. Coming up, Bitcoin's rising tide lifting many, speaking of rising tide, lifting boats, lifting crypto ships, uh, SHIP ships this year. But can the rally keep sailing through 2024? We'll dive into the ultimate would you rather with one of our Bitcoin bulls. Plus, do you know your options? That's the question we ask at the end of a record year for options trading. The biggest storylines and a trade for the new year after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Crypto's climb getting steeper in 2023's final days. Bitcoin gaining almost 3% today, now up more than, wait for it, 160% so far this year. And the Bitcoin boom sparking a monster ripple effect. Marathon Digital, Coinbase, MicroStrategy up more than 350% each of them this year. Look at Marathon up 808%. The Bitcoin miner Marathon uh, Digital leading the pack, as you see on the chart in front of you. Steve, what makes the most sense in 2024? The digital currency, pure play, or stocks with deep crypto ties? People that are in love with this space are going to be truest, where they just want to buy the actual asset. The actual asset. But when you look at Bitcoin, other than there's a finite supply of it, it doesn't really have a use case. So I lean towards Ethereum that doesn't have a constrained supply of it. It could be literally unlimited, but there's use cases to Ethereum. There's not with the Bitcoin. Now, your, your question, though. What are those use cases? Every other, every other cryptocurrency or other tr- cryptocurrencies can trade on the Ethereum network, platform. on the yeah. platform. And then also you could have anything. They take the legalese out of a lot of the stuff. Things that are meant to be done on blockchain could be done with the Ethereum platform that are just plug and play. So you don't really get that. Bitcoin is, is basically the digital gold, and that's the reason why they call it. Because there's not a real. Uh, not so you just answered Bitcoin or, or Ethereum. You take Ethereum. I would take I would take Ethereum, um, and then I would like to be. And so you, you want to ask me the other questions there? Well, I was going to say it says here Bitcoin or MicroStrategy. So you, when you look at the companies that are steeped around cryptocurrency, they have the ability to rise more because there's other things within their platform that could actually generate revenue, yeah. like a Coinbase. They yeah. could ge- generate revenue in a host of other. Uh, ways. But when you look at the actual cur- cryptocurrency, it's very difficult. In my, in my case, Ethereum Trust, it would trade it at $4 this year. It's trading at 20 now. I want to get to Mike, but would you read the last one here? Just since you were a Bitcoin or Bitcoin or Coinbase. Coinbase. There you go. Yeah. So you go with Coinbase. Go with Coinbase. All there right, you Mike, go. what do you say, man? Uh, I, I think if you're taking a look at Bitcoin, it's it's hard, I think, for most people who are looking at this not to believe that it's probably going to test its all time highs, which is substantially higher than where it is right now. So you're looking at another 50 percent or so or more. 
potentially in Bitcoin if you think it's got room. And as far as the miners are concerned, like a marathon, of course, they're going to have a little bit just like the gold miners do as well. When the prices start getting higher, they have a lot more leverage uh, to the upside there. But of course, a lot of that's already been priced in on the marathon side. Coinbase is you're, you're buying a company and the company is not profitable. And I think that's the challenge if you're looking at a name like Coinbase. Well, let's take a quick break. Coming up, as we just mentioned, Coinbase is one of the market's biggest winners. But could the options market pull the rug out from under this high flyer in the new year? We will lay out a trade that could tell the story when we return. Stay with us. Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the big run in crypto this year. And, Mike, you've got a trade on Coinbase, we've been talking about it, that could be a prudent hedge in case the bull case goes south. Tell us about Look, it. Look, I don't think a lot of people are going to be selling their winners right before the end of the year and taking their, their gains right now. But I'll tell you, if the wind comes out of the sales of some of the fastest and highest flying stocks of the year, Coinbase is certainly one of those that could potentially be vulnerable. And so this is also one of the single stocks that has seen the most uh, options activity. I think one thing that people could look to do at the very least is hedge. I was looking at the February 175, 135 put spread. That would cost about 13 bucks. It's a $40 wide spread. Now, you might say to yourself, that's a pretty far way for it to drop. But if you take a look right before we saw that pullback in early 22, a lot of the highest flying stocks from 21 gave up a lot of their gains in the in the early part of that year. And I think Coinbase is one of those that is potentially vulnerable in the new year. Mike, perfect uh, case laid out there to hedge on Coinbase. Uh, up next, your final trades. Record day for the Dow, close on the S&P. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Mike, you get to go first. Uh, yeah, you know, a lot of stocks are higher this year. United Health is not, but they're growing earnings in the mid-teens. I think this is a good one here. Final trade. Yeah, healthcare getting a little love on the desk tonight. Stu, your thoughts? Uh, you know, we like uh, S&P equal weight. You know, I think the Fed keeps you long equities. We think earnings are broad now, and I think that helps the equal weight index. Too Hasn't well. played as much this year. Maybe next year is the time for it. Court. Uh, we talked about housing and the supply demand constraints. I think DR Horton is something to look at because they get those first-time home buyers. Majority of their sales are under 400,000, so it's a good way to capture that. All right, DR Horton and Steve, bring us home. You here tomorrow? I'm here tomorrow. I'll be I'm here, here tomorrow, tomorrow too. CRISPR, CRISPR Therapeutics. CRISPR. Love the company. If you don't know it, look it up. All right, CRISPR. Everything's better when it's CRISPR. All right, thanks everybody for watching Fast Money. I've had a good time. Hope you have. And you know what's coming up right now. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. 
crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.